Bonnie knows when you plant something, it keeps on giving. Growing from friend to neighbor to community. Generations of gardeners have trusted Bonnie for fresh, healthy vegetable and herb plants. Rely on Bonnie for quality plants, help, and support. Bonnie, gardening with you since 1918. BonniePlants.com You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. An island nation's obsession with beetles, Eastern European fairy tales, and Arctic cowboys. Today, I'm talking to the filmmaker behind the films that explore these fascinating topics and more. Jessica Oric, next up on After the Jump. Hey, and welcome to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonnie, and today we're coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You can listen to the show live every Thursday at 11 on heritageradionetwork.org or download the podcast on iTunes. One of my favorite parts about having a radio show like this is getting the chance to interview people professionally that I've gotten a chance to know personally first. Uh, filmmaker Jessica Oric is a dear friend of my friend and coworker Amy Azarito, and I've always been fascinated to hear stories about her adventures from Amy. And it's always sounded like Jessica was traveling somewhere incredible to film something even more incredible. And I'm so intrigued and impressed by her dedication to her projects and the lengths to which she'll go to tell the story she wants to tell in exactly the way she wants to. Most recently, that meant living in a remote northern, or living in remote northern Finland for a year to tell the story of a family of reindeer herders in Finnish Lapland. I I can't wait to hear more about our process and what it was like to live amongst reindeer herders. So let's get started. Thanks so much for being here, Jessica. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Before we start, I want to congratulate you on the film I was just discussing, um, Atsinki, which is about Arctic cowboys, premiered at the 2013 Tribeca Film Festival to rave reviews. And I was in the audience and it was one of the most hushed and closely attentive crowds I've ever seen. And it really felt like people were so riveted. What, what was that like, that experience? Um, well, I was sort of distracted. Um, I was <laughs> sitting, I brought the family in um, for the premiere and it was their first time in the US. And um, so I was sitting next to them and they were sort of twittery and nervous and were joking the whole time. So I actually wasn't really paying attention to the audience, <laughs> but I had a good time watching it for sure. Yeah, it felt really momentous. It was interesting to see somebody that I like knew standing up there at this like very prestigious event and everybody's like whispering about the film and they're so excited. And I'm like, oh, it's Jessica. It's Jessica's movie. Um, but it was it was so exciting. And to read all the reviews was really so fascinating. And we were all so happy for you. Um, so I want to back up a little bit. Um, I knew a little bit about your background, but I want to delve into it a little deeper so we can get a better picture of how you got where you are today. So let's start way, way back. Where did you grow up? Oh, that's such a hard question for me because we've <laughs> moved around. Um, I don't really think of any one place as home. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, that's a hard question for me to it's answer. It's got to be why you can travel so much <laughs> so well. <laughs> Maybe so. Home is home is where the next project is, I guess. Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, what was your family like? Were they supportive of the arts and sort of your interest in that? Certainly. Absolutely. Um, we were not allowed to watch TV and we didn't listen to much radio, so... Um, my sister and I grew up, uh, reading a lot and my mom insisted that we come home with our knees dirty every day. So we had to spend a lot of time outside. And I think that that is really where my, 
uh, love of insects comes from is because for my sister, it meant she was reading on a swing and then would dirty her knees before we went outside. But, but for me, it really meant digging in the dirt and playing with worms and cockroaches and whatever else I could find. So I need to do it in my kitchen someday. <laughs> I had one the other day and I had no one to remove it. I feel like you would have been more intrigued and less disgusted than I was. Certainly. Yes. Um, when did you first discover your interest in filmmaking? Um, I guess that would be when I was 14. Um, I knew I wanted to work in the natural sciences, but I didn't really want to be a scientist um, because I didn't want to work in a lab for my life. And I wanted to be a teacher, but I really don't get along with kids very well. So (laughs) um, I didn't think that that was right for me. And uh, my high school biology class when I was 14, one of my teachers showed us um, David Attenborough's Private Life of Plants. And it was the first time I had seen a nature program because we didn't watch TV. So it was not something I was even really aware that existed. And I just it blew my mind. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to make films about science and about nature and about anything that interests me. That's interesting. Did you ever go back and kind of like watch National Geographic programs or things like that now that you are allowed to watch? (laughs) My parents weren't strict about it. It's just that we didn't have it in the house. Yeah. Um, I just want to clarify. They weren't, they weren't repressive or anything. Um, But so I have since then watched many nature programs, and David Attenborough is still a major hero of mine. Yeah, for certain. How do you think not being able? I'm just, I'm so fascinated by this one, especially like a weirdo TV person. <laughs> I, how do you think that kind of shaped the way you're like visually creating these films? Because I feel like my aesthetics in terms of the way I look at film, and if I was going to sit down and make a film, would be so shaped by the way I've been kind of fed imagery through television and film. But you weren't fed that in the same way how did you approach kind of your first film visually without any of that kind of history behind it actually the the first film that I made um I worked with uh the cinematographer that I prefer to use for almost any project Sean Price Williams and um he sort of shaped it visually I I was clueless I mean I had just graduated from college I didn't know what the heck I was doing we just showed up in Japan and I was like okay I have this idea let's try and make it happen And so he really set the tone for what um, that film was going to look like and how it was going to just how the atmosphere was going to be built. So that was that was sort of my lesson in filmmaking arts was that that first film. Yeah. So what do you think drives your choices in terms of deciding what stories you'll tell? Because the first film you did was such a fascinating topic. Um, How did you choose to to talk about? Japanese beetles um, and then you have such like sort of diverse source of things that you're talking about and I, I'm just kind of curious about how all those things come together because to me they seem like super spread all over the place but where are they coming from? Um, well I knew I wanted to make films about nature because that's always been my um, my passion was biological sciences um, But I started working at the Natural History Museum when I was in college, um, the American Museum of Natural History. And I was working in the Butterfly Vivarium, and I was able to watch people come in and interact with these butterflies in sort of this semi-natural environment. I mean, it's very not natural, but to (laughs) New Yorkers, it is this, you know, to New Yorkers, it's a tropical rainforest. Um, And it was so fascinating to watch the way that people would respond, you know, with fear or with awe, with anger. I mean, they were so, it was such an interesting. People were angry at butterflies? Well, not <laughs> at butterflies, but they just, people people can be very full of rage if they don't get what they want. And um, I don't know, but the ones that were full of awe, that was so inspiring to me to watch sort of the, 
the yuckiness of New York fall away when they came into the space and got to be up close and personal with these beautiful butterflies. And so I sort of, that sort of set the tone for me. I was like, I want to, to create that wonder. I want to get people thinking about the way that they think about nature. And I just want to create a little bit of wonder and awe in the world. So, um, I first heard about the Japanese love of insects while I was working at the Natural History Museum. And immediately, since I've loved insects for forever and have always not been ostracized, but certainly not, it's not a popular thing to, to enjoy. Um, so as soon as I, as soon as I found out about it, I was like, this is the film for me. I love Japanese pop music. I like butterflies. I like butterflies and beetles and all sorts of bugs. So this is good. Um, and it just, it sort of set the tone for all the projects that I want to make in terms of, I, I call it ethnobiology. I know that's not the academic definition, but the way that human cultures interact with the natural world, that's sort of how I set the standard for what I'm, um, for what I, my projects are. Though I tend to, nowadays, after these first three features, I keep spreading out and spreading out. <laughs> they're less and less about ethnobiology and more just generally about education and creating mm-hmm. a sense of wonder. Yeah, absolutely. And you've done that across such a wide range of of subjects. I want to talk about that first film a little bit more. um, It's such a fascinating topic about sort of Japan's obsession with with insects and and in particular beetles. Um, What was sort of the learning curve on that first film? Because it sounds like you guys just threw yourselves in and landed in Japan. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had studied filmmaking, biology, ecology and botany in in university. um, And I, I had an idea of what I wanted the film to be, but I had never made a film really out in the world. I mean, I'd made short projects and things, but um, Sean was a huge influence on that because he had shot a bunch of things already and had, you know, co-directed things and directed short projects. So he was very helpful in that. Um, But mostly it was just trusting my instincts, which is something that I never realized was something I needed to um, guard. I didn't, I, it had, growing up with my sister, you know, it was just like, we were very different. And so- I just got my way and she got her way and we didn't, we know we, we, I don't know. We just didn't, it wasn't something that I realized that trusting your instincts was something that people had to work towards. Yeah. Um, so I just, I did it sort of in this vacuum and I was like, yeah, okay, I can make this movie. It's no problem. I had, I just had this ultimate confidence. My parents had always told me, you know, you can do whatever you set your heart to. And I really (laughs) believed them. Um, and then I showed it to people and, I guess I, I, I guess I was surprised that people liked it, but in somewhere deep down inside, I was like, yeah, of course, because I did what I wanted to do so that I would like it. <laughs> um, but it was, yeah, it was sort of a shock that it did as well as it did. That's so cool. How big of a role does like the audience or like critical response play in your filmmaking? Do you feel like you're creating sort of out of a love of creating and the response isn't such a big deal or does that, is that a big part of like the process and enjoyment for you? Oh, it's, it's very complicated because to me, I create because I love to create and there's a very particular way I want to tell, tell something. Um, I, I, the word story gets overused, I think. So I hate, I try and avoid (laughs) it when I can, but, um, so it's, I try not to think about the audience when I'm making the film and I'm just, I have confidence that if an audience member is paying attention close enough, um, and willing to put forward a little bit of thought on their own, that the films will make sense and that they'll be enjoyable and they're not going to be for everyone. Certainly. Mm -hmm. I know that's not, I'm not, you know, making blockbusters, (laughs) but I do think that there are enough people on the planet that have interests and tastes similar enough to mine that they can find joy and pleasure from the films. And so far that's proven to be true. Um, 
but it is it is soul crushing to <laughs> deal with the you know especially now that everyone can be a blogger and everyone can be on twitter and you yes. and you get these google alerts coming in and it's like this person has something really horrible to say about me oh, and yeah. just that can be really hard but then you know you get you get personal emails from people saying that the film changed their life and that makes up for it. Yeah, so. exactly. It's fascinating. Before we were taught or before we were recording, we were talking about um, being introverts and we were both claiming to be introverts. And uh, I never really thought about it until you said that about how you found, and I've, I think I've done something similar, not as well as you have done it, but like finding a platform for expressing yourself as an introvert because you're in complete control over the message and the image and the story that you're telling. And um, it's so interesting. Do you feel like that's kind of a safe zone for you because like you're creating and just kind of putting it out there and in your own vacuum? It's a safe zone until it's out there. And then it's no longer <laughs> really a safe zone. Um, and that is that is something I've really had to... To figure out. And now, of course, now that talking about, you know, trusting my instincts, now that you have all this feedback coming back in, then you really start to doubt yourself. So for the first time, I'm really having to learn, relearn to trust my instincts. If that's, I think that's a big process of any like maker or independent artist of any type is like you get this initial first few years of like riding your gut instinct, everything goes really well. And then I think if you make a certain level of success and sort of critical acclaim, like you have, you start to get your first taste of like pushback or even just people kind of doubting or saying you should do different things. And then you start to realize like, oh, maybe my, I should like question my instincts (laughs) and you have to like really relearn to like trust them and take risks all over again. Yeah. It's, it's proven very very challenging. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk before we go on a break real quick. I wanted to talk right before we were recording. You also said the, the new project, which you're working on, which we'll talk about after uh, the break, you announced before filming, which is the first time you've announced something before you sort of put it out there and that that put so much pressure on you. Talk a little bit about what that pressure feels like. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's very overwhelming. Normally I make projects sort of in my own head and the whole thing is crafted and and in my head, I can see the whole thing before I announce it, before I start. And normally I don't announce until I've already started filming or I've already started the editing process or even until I already have a finished product. So this is really the first time that I'm I'm starting something before I know what it's going to look like and know what it's exactly what it's going to be. And it's um, it's incredibly stressful because all of a sudden there's a huge amount of pressure Um from the outside world that I've set up so much expectation that I don't, I mean, I'm confident that I can meet those expectations, but the thing is that everyone's going to have a different expectation. Yes. So I can't meet everyone's expectations. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like it's a part of this sort of like Kickstarter generation of mm-hmm. people who are used to kind of announcing things, pro- making all sorts of promises, and then having this audience of people who have like funded and backed something and then expect all those things to be delivered. And it kind of, in some way, can limit maybe creative processes or things that might change along the way in a film that you started you thought would end one way and things kind of take a different direction. I'm, I'm curious to see how this project will turn out compared to the other ones. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with filmmaker Jessica Oreck. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. 
Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. When you plant something, it keeps on giving. Growing from friend to neighbor to community. Generations of gardeners have trusted Bonnie for fresh, healthy vegetable and herb plants. Rely on Bonnie for quality plants, help, and support. Bonnie, gardening with you since 1918. BonniePlants.com Hey, and welcome back to After the Jump. Today I'm speaking with filmmaker Jessica Oric. And before the break, we were talking about Jessica's background and how she chose her first topics. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the actual film production process. Um, for me, it seems so different than the kind of fundraising and production that I'm used to, sort of like visual art and things like that. For people who aren't familiar with filmmaking, give us a little bit of an overview about what it's like to try to produce a film, like in terms of funding and practical things. Oh, geez. Um it's difficult. Um, filmmaking is hard in that it, you really can't do it alone, um, especially once you get into post-production. I mean, production I have in the past worked as a crew of one, and that work can sometimes work great. Um, but most situations, you need a full crew, and then you've got to have, you know... I like to do everything by myself. So my, <laughs> I guess I, I, should, I should preface this by saying that m- my sort of process uh, and my workflow is very different than most other filmmakers. Um, I edit by myself. I have shot a lot by myself. Um, I write by myself. I sort of do everything by myself. But there's a lot of people involved in filmmaking, and it's hugely expensive. Um, so, mu- so much that I'm embarrassed to even throw numbers out there because it's – totally unsustainable (laughs) but it's um it's an interesting process because there's so much time when you have to be interacting with people and there's so much time where you have to be by yourself yeah um and you just have to wear so many different hats it's a real challenge to stay human and do all of the all of the above yeah is it different for every film or do you is there kind of a simple or not simple but like a a process you repeat each time like are you looking for investors do you do like crowdfunding how do you typically get things off the ground it depends on the film um in the past i've done crowdfunding and lots of grant writing the grant applications are huge time suck and soul suck as well because (laughs) the amount of rejections that you get just because there's so many filmmakers out there that are all applying for the same grants um but, yeah, you have to find the money. Um, but now, you know, once, I don't know. I, I don't want to jinx myself. Never mind. I'm not going <laughs> to say that. <laughs> um, let's talk about your production process. Is there a typical production process or is that different for every film too? And how long do you typically spend on each phase of production? I definitely say it would depend. Um, Beetle Queen, I spent a, a year researching before we went. Wow. Um, we were there for six weeks. And then I spent a year editing. Um the Vanquishing of the Witch Baba Yaga, which is supposed to come out next year, fingers crossed, <laughs> knock on wood, um, is 
I've been working on since 2008. So that one's longer. Yeah. Um, but the reindeer project that just came out, Atsinki, the story of Arctic cowboys, um, I, I had this idea that I was going to make a film about cowboys. I flew to Finland, found the family within the first two weeks, and then just lived there for a year with them. There was no... There was, there was not a huge amount of research. There was some research, but mostly it was just me in that space by myself, which is very unusual. That's, I never made a film like that before because normally yeah. I have a crew and I go for a few weeks. And um, this was like a sustained exposure to one type of person. And it was, um, it was very different than my other films. I want to unpack all that stuff you just said because you kind of glossed over the fact that you basically spent a year in Finnish Lapland living with people who don't speak English and... Tell people how, how you found the family that you chose to profile in the film. Um, I was looking for cowboys, as I said, and I originally was looking in Siberia. And then my parents moved to Helsinki because my dad got a job there. And um, so I was like, oh, well, I'll just go to Finland to use <laughs> Helsinki as my home base. And I couldn't, I spent a long time looking for a family and I just couldn't find somebody that I connected with, but that was also good on camera and comfortable on camera and presented the type of uh, masculinity that I was looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I called my mom. I was really bummed out. I was like, mom, I can't (laughs) find anybody. This really sucks. And you know, mom in perfect mom fashion was like, well, there's this really nice guy down at the (laughs) farmer's market who knows, you know, who sells reindeer meat. I'm sure he knows someone. And I rolled my eyes and was like, fine, I'll meet this guy. And sure enough, he said he had the perfect person. So we just, I met him in Lapland a few weeks later and I met, um, Arne Atsinki, the one of the main characters in the film. And immediately I was like, that's the guy. And um, he didn't really speak English, so I don't think he understood when I said, okay, I'll see you in September and live with you for a year. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't really think he understood what he was getting himself into. But the film is about his, him and his brother and his wife and kid, and their wives and kids. And um, they really adopted me as their own. It was They were just wonderful, amazing people. I think what I love about this film so much, other than it's just, I mean, it's visually just stunning and it's hard to kind of put into words how beautiful Lapland is at all times of the year and how simply you kind of document that. But the film is is almost silent for, you know, the majority of it, which I didn't know going into it, which was so funny because our mutual friend Amy had, had seen so many cuts of it and never mentioned that. And I kept thinking there was going to be like this very like nature uh, like, you know, voiceover. And then I was like, oh, it's, it, there's never going to be talking. <laughs> no. But it was so funny at the end of it. I was like, this is what her experience was. It was such a wonderful way to translate your like living in your shoes while you were there of these people who really don't speak English they're not even talking to each other that much. It's just kind of the sounds of reindeer, the sounds of snow, the sounds of equipment, the sounds of things being dragged and moved. And it was such an interesting way to like immediately put your audience in that place. And you could have heard a pin drop in that theater. I think people were so entranced by just visually experiencing that and then being like, we we got a tiny taste of what it was like for her to be there. (laughs) Well, it was really interesting for me. I really believe in creating atmosphere in in my films more than anything else, more than presenting facts, um, more than telling a story. I think that if you can take the audience out of the theater and into what you've experienced or into a place that they've never been before, then that then that's the purpose of filmmaking to me. Um, and so I really wanted the film to feel very much like my experience. And it's true. I mean, reindeer herding for them is such an instinctual and innate part of their being that they didn't communicate with each other. I mean, they really just, the, the, the brothers would look at each other and they would know what they were supposed to be doing. It was pretty astonishing. It was incredible. And there was, there was so much sort of repetition in things that even though, I mean, for the first 
like maybe 20 minutes, I was like, I have no idea what's happening. What's happening? I don't know what they're doing. What's this process? Are, are they going to get slaughtered? What's happening? I was like constantly scared that a reindeer was going to get killed. Um, but then there's this like really beautiful ebb and flow, not just with the seasons in the film, but with sort of their rituals. And I sort of fell in love with the process of them cutting wood into these little slivers and splinters to start fires. And like by the end of it, you really kind of get what their process is like and what honestly what their day to 24 hour day to day life is like and that felt like such a gift to give people because that's not that's not a, a people or a group or a lifestyle that most of us here would ever have any exposure to yeah and that was part of it I mean the first you know six months that I was there I felt the way you felt for the first 20 minutes of the film where I was always like what the hell is going on why won't anybody tell me what's going on um so I was often confused but then by the end you sort of get into the rhythm of it um and you know after a year there I I just felt like I even if I didn't know exactly what was happening it didn't matter as much yeah. because I you know was confident that that everything was going to work itself out I don't know it just it was a good feeling yeah. to be familiar with that I like that um I want to get to your newest project but first I want to ask a, a quick question about something that you just released which was a web series called mysteries of vernacular where you examine words in 26 installments one for each letter of the alphabet in animated form i'm so into this project i think it's so fascinating um how did this come about how did you decide to sort of embrace this shorter animated format um i had actually been working in that format for a long time i just had never released anything um when i was in college i i had uh I had studied uh, children's educational programming and I had made a series of short films about science, um, which I'm still hoping will someday see the light of day. I don't know. We'll see. But um, <clears throat> I had, I have many, many ideas like mysteries of vernacular that are always just sort of sitting on my shelf waiting to be uh, developed. But I just decided one day I, w- I had a free weekend and I was like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to try and make this project. It ended up taking much longer than I expected. But then when it was finished, I showed it to Amy, actually. And Amy was the one that was like, you have to put this out into the world. So I just put it up online and it sort of did its own thing. I was really surprised. When I was reading it, it said it took 80 hours to create each installment. Yeah. Well, that's what I meant when I said it took me longer than I expected. (laughs) Um, Because I thought it was going to be easy. But I'm not particularly great at representational drawing. So Mm -hmm. it's been a really good experience for me to learn to sort of paint and do things that that are not more, not so abstract. Um, And I love that you did that, though, that you weren't like, I'm going to hire somebody else to do that, (laughs) that you did the full process. I think that's what's so lovely about all of the projects that you've done that I've seen so far is that you really can feel your hand as much as you can in like a, in a film um, on everything because you're clearly like so into every aspect of that film even if you're working with the cinematographer I feel like you can tell that you've chosen the exact way everything is going to come across. I'm very fastidious is what a composer <laughs> recently told me when we were working together and I was like that note needs to come up three decibels. He was oh like wow Jessica <laughs> you are very fastidious. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, before we're out of time, let's talk about uh, This Working Man, which is your latest project. I'm holding the postcard. It feels vaguely like an Abercrombie commercial. <laughs> um, but let's talk about this project. Um, it's a series of short video portraits of men at work. How did you come up with that idea? Um, actually, part of it was filming Otsinki. <clears throat> um, I love process and technique and just watching people work on something that they know very well. I find that incredibly pleasing. Um, I've always loved to watch, you know, concert pianists or sculptors or anybody that does something well. Um, you know, growing up, we had a nanny who would make tortillas and th- to watch her make tortillas was so beautiful. It was just some, it was one of my treasured memories from childhood. 
you know, the way she smelled and everything, but that was unrelated. Um, <laughs> but living with the Atsinkis, the brothers give, um, they, they, you know, during the wintertime they have tourists come. And so I got to watch them interact with hundreds of tourists. And it was astonishing to me the way that it didn't matter what the, what the tourists were there for, but any woman between the age of 20 and 60 fell in love <laughs> with the brothers. Yeah. And there was, it was just this primordial, instinctual part of them that just couldn't help but be attracted to this person that worked hard and very effectively and was so capable and so graceful in what they were doing. And I just, I, to me, this film is really about, I mean, it's about a lot of different things, but it is about man as animal. I mean, humans as animals. And just that we we come up with all these ideas about why we're on earth and why we're doing what we're doing and why we feel inspired. And in the end, a lot of times, I think it just comes down to the fact that we have these very basic, these basic <laughs> urges that we're trying to fulfill. Um, and so we do a lot for that. So to me, it's sort of just reminding people how how animal we really are <laughs> and whether, you know, but it's also, I mean, that's sort of the, the vague concept behind it, but the films to me are very much about the visual grace of well-practiced motion and kinetic form and movement and the way that someone who's done something for a long time gets to know the process in a way that they're, it's, it's dance. It is. It's that's quite about watching woodworkers. Dance. I yeah. feel like if you're watching a carpenter or a woodworker, watching them sort of do what they do with such grace and such fluidity is, it, it is, it's like visual poetry, yeah. which sounds so cheesy to say out loud, but <laughs> it really, it really, really is. But yes, that, that is the way I feel. Uh, we're just about out of time. I want to ask you a few last questions. Uh, what's the hardest part of what you do? The hardest part of what I do, raising money and awareness about my projects. And what's the best part of what you do? God, that's hard because I love every part of it, except for the raising money part. <laughs> but I really do. I love I love what I do. Um, I love getting to share what I do, but I also love to just sit in my room by myself and edit or to be in the Arctic or to be on a road trip filming working men. I mean, I just I am so blessed to be able to do what I what I love to do. I can't think of a better note to end on. So we're, we're going to end there. Thanks so much for being here, Jessica. Uh, for everyone who wants to check out her films, it's myriapodproductions.com. You can see all of the projects she's worked on and all the ones coming up. Um, and you can check out information on This Working Man at thisworkingman.com. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.